This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. In a minute, you'll hear the first part of my conversation with Stephen Schwartzman, co-founder and CEO of the Blackstone Group. Steve Schwartzman is probably the most influential banker this country's ever had since the original J.P. Morgan. His firm controls more commercial real estate, single-family homes, companies that employ over 400,000 people around the world. You'll find this conversation fascinating from beginning to end. But first, when I look at this week, here's what's ahead. There are some economic numbers coming out. On Tuesday, we'll get the S&P CoreLogic Case-Shiller Indices. That talks about residential housing prices. How are they doing? On Tuesday, also, we'll get the Consumer Confidence Index coming out. Now, that's been up and down. was up a little bit recently. We'll see how consumer confidence is going into the Christmas selling season. On Wednesday, new residential sales. Housing has been a weak part of the economy. Is that going to be picking up? On Wednesday and Thursday, we'll get those weekly oil and gas numbers. How are those inventories doing? Oil is shot up because of what happened in Saudi Arabia, so these numbers will be looked at with keen interest. On Friday, durable goods orders coming in. This is critical because manufacturing has been a weak link in this economy. So we'll see from these durable goods numbers, is there a turnaround coming there? We'll also have unemployment weekly claims on Thursday. Uh, They should still be pretty good. They're sort of a lagging indicator in terms of the health of the economy. And we'll get yet another revision next week of the second quarter of GDP, which no one will be interested in. They'll want to know what's going to happen in the third quarter. Now, but a lot of other things are going on. The UN is meeting this week in New York. Heads of states from scores of countries around the world. Will the US and Iran start negotiations? There'll be other rumors of things coming. China trade talks are coming up in the next few days. And overseas in Britain, the UK Supreme Court, I say UK, United Kingdom has a Supreme Court. And they just heard a case where Boris Johnson went against another conservative, former conservative prime minister, about Johnson trying to suspend parliament to help make Brexit a reality by October 31st. Now, the amazing thing about the UK Supreme Court is it didn't exist. It exists because of the European Union. It came into formal existence in 2009, took over the functions that used to be performed by the House of Lords. So that's going to be a very interesting thing. Can Johnson actually pull through what people wanted in a referendum now three years ago? But those who want Britain to stay in the European Union are fighting a fierce rearguard action, and some think that they could ultimately succeed. Other things will be going on. Israel's had a very messy election. Those negotiations will be going on at a time of intense crisis in the Middle East. What's Iran going to do? lot going on. We have our special guest here today, Steve Schwartzman, founder of Blackstone Group, leading firm in the world, leading banking firm in the world. We called him several years ago, Wall Street's unstoppable force, the most powerful banker on the planet. Steve, thank you for joining us. Thanks a lot, Steve. (laughs) Well, you say in your book, What It Takes, Lessons in the Pursuit of Excellence, you can learn to be a manager. You can learn to be a leader, but you can't learn to be an entrepreneur. Tell us about your father and the linens business and uh, your experience 
what your 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 father was not a born entrepreneur. No, my dad was uh, was extremely bright and a lovely, uh, happy uh, person and a wonderful person for to <laughs> to be their son. Um, but he had a store that uh, sort of looked like Bed Bath and Beyond, uh, and um, uh, as a family member. Uh, I had to start working there. I think the first time I was there, I was probably six. Uh, and, you know, the people in the basement dragged me along on a dolly on top of some uh, giant cartons of um, pillows or something. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I worked so you there. learned about dust? I learned about dust, and that's one reason I'm in finance. And uh, <laughs> surprise, surprise, my brother's. Uh, you know, Twin ended brothers. up in finance as well because none of us like dust in basements and retailing. Uh, but but um, you know, I, it was pretty clear to me that the store was doing well. Uh, so when I was about thirteen or fourteen, I said to my dad, "I said, why why don't we just expand uh, this store all over the country?" At, at that point, Sears, which is now sort of deeply troubled. You know, sort of a, the major um, mall anchor, and you know, it was all over the country. Uh, and uh, and I, I said, you know, people do this with stores; they just don't have one of them. They can be everywhere. And my my dad says, well, you know, they'll, they'll steal from the cash register if I'm not watching it. And I said, Dad, they they obviously must have figured out a system since there are these other national businesses, and you know the they have enough money that isn't stolen from a cash register. And uh, he said, well, I, I don't think I want to do that. And I said, why, why don't you want to do that? He said, he said I, I, I just don't want to do it. I said, well, okay. Uh, well, why don't we just open stores all over Pennsylvania? Because I was living in Philadelphia. That's where the store was. He said, no, I don't want to do that. I said, well, we certainly can just open it bunch of other stores around Philadelphia. He said, Steve, I, I don't want to do that. I said, Dad, why don't you want to do it? It's going to be successful. And he said, I'm happy the way I am. I like running this store. We do very well. Um, but he said, I don't have the need for it. He said, I, I have enough money to, you know, have a house and send you and your brothers to college and I have two cars and I don't want anything else. And I said, dad, it's not about what you want. It's what you can achieve. And he said, I don't want to achieve more. And I found that to be, uh, shocking, uh, because I looked at it and said, this is really sort of easy. It's got a great concept. Stores always filled. Why wouldn't you want to take it to the world? Uh, but, you know, it, it, it taught me uh, that, that my dad, who is very, very intelligent, um, that, that, that intelligence doesn't necessarily have to correlate, you know, with the desire to, you know, achieve different things and have different adventures. And, and so it was, it was a learning moment uh, for me. You also learned, uh, obviously, you may have inherited this from your mother. Your mother, by contrast, was very active and uh, went into sailing, taught you to be a sailor, and won competitions. That's a little unusual. Yeah, my mother uh, was sort of um, a force before her time. 
Uh, and if, if there had been what we all called in the early 70s women's lib, uh, you know, she would have been running a big company or doing something uh, pretty extraordinary. She had an enormous uh, competitive uh, nature. Um, my dad was also, a, you know, runner in college and things like that. But my mother uh, was sort of an unstoppable force. Well, uh, you obviously inherited that gene, and we see it in Abington High School. You become president of the student council. Very nice. Get your name on a plaque and all that good stuff. But you want to do something big. And at the time, one of the big rock groups, I'm old enough to remember this, Little Anthony and the Imperials. Now, how in the world did you get them to do a concert at your school? That's amazing. Yeah, that's really a good question, and I, I don't even remember the answer, except I wanted to have some kind of major rock group because I wanted to do something different uh, than just sort of normal kids who would be in that position. And so we settled on them, uh, and, um, you know, I started asking around, did anybody father know anybody and because we had no money to pay for them so so we had to convince them that this was in their interest to go to a high school in suburban philadelphia uh and 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 we did i remember when that was going on i i almost always get the same feeling when when i do these things that when they're actually happening i'm less interested in them uh, because i've imagined repeatedly what that's going to sound like be like uh, how people will respond. And I, I live that many, many, many times before things ever happen. So, so when it happened, I, I remember just sort of standing along the side saying, this is nice. Well, great athletes do that. They imagine themselves doing things time and time again, not just the practice, but also mentally. So you uh, go to Yale. You have an English instructor. He calls you in. You've turned into lousy papers. But you learned something from him, not only about teaching, but also something more. Tell us about Alistair Wood. Yeah, this was really uh, pretty frightening. Uh, <laughs> I got a 68 uh, on my first English paper uh, on Bartleby the Scrivener, uh, writ written by Hervin Melville. Uh, and then I got a 66 uh, on my next English paper. And, and uh, you know, he, he called me in for a meeting. Uh, not, not a surprise. Uh, and he was on the top floor of a, a very, you know, junior uh, faculty uh, office. And um, so, so, so I sat down in this hard wooden chair and, you know, he was all tweeted up with, you know, sort of the way people did in the 60s, uh, you know, Tattersall shirt and, you know, sort of knit tie. And, and um, he said, Mr. Schwarzman, we're here to talk about your English papers. And, and I said, Mr. Wood, there's really nothing to talk about. He said, well, why would that be? I said, well, I had nothing to say, and I said it poorly. And there was silence. And then he said, my God, you're not stupid. And he said, I think I can work with you. He said, so you don't know how to write and you don't know how to think. He said, I can't teach you both at the same time. So I'm going to give you the answers to the next few essays, and I'm going to work on teaching you how to write. And once you figure out how to write, then I'll teach you how to think. Um, and, and so he did, and I, I ended up on Dean's List uh, at the end of the first year. If, if it weren't for him, um, I'm not sure I would have made it. One of the lessons you learned 
as you mentioned in the book, is not just teaching and imparting knowledge. You say you have to remove obstacles in people's way, which was a lifelong lesson. Right, and, and also, you know, making that extra effort to help somebody. Um, you know, I, I find in my life when you, when you do that, you can change people's lives and, and you can help them improve. You can help them be something or be someone or realize their potential. Uh, and it just takes that focus and understanding that, that somebody's got an issue. So you're at reunions, you take a job there, and you do something on impulse. Tell us about Babar the Elephant. Yeah, I had no money, so I, I, you know, I graduated. I, I, did, I didn't have a job. I didn't have any money. Uh, it's like pretty grim, and, and they had reunions, um, at, as they do at many universities, and, and uh, so I volunteered to work at one because you got paid something, and this was the 15th reunion, so these were very old people. They were 37 years old, and so at that stage... Uh, you, you know, usually people uh, of my generation, they were married uh, and they had some children uh, when they were 37. And so I was working uh, and I saw this wonderful family. Uh, the fellow I learned subsequently, uh, his name was Larry Noble, but I didn't know him at all. And, you know, it was it was like, you know, they, were, they had a, some quilts spread out and they were having lunch uh, in the courtyard at Davenport. Uh, and I think I had either two or three kids. And I, I don't know exactly what, what motivated me, but my father uh, used to read Babar the Elephant uh, to me before I went to sleep. So I, I went to a bookstore. I mean, I basically didn't have much money. And I don't know why. I, I bought the book, and I walked over, and I, I just gave it to this family. And... They sort of looked and said, why are you doing this? And, and I said, you look so happy, so, so content. I, I said, I just wanted to share this with you. And then I walked away. So, so, so the, the husband comes after me. He said, you know, that was such a nice thing to do. He said, well, wh what are you doing after graduation? I, I said, nothing. I, I don't know what to do. He said, well, listen, come and see me tomorrow. He said, I, I, I work at the admissions office, and I may have some ideas. So, so the way I got into finance is, is this wonderful man, Larry Noble, was, was, knew a lot of people in New York. And I had never been to New York in a commercial sense. And um, one of his, um, you know, he sent me to see um, a guy named Lou Lapham, who was vice chairman of Bankers Trust, and you know, he offered me a job and then told me not to take it because I'd be bored. I thought that was pretty weird for an adult to spend the time, offer me a job, and tell me not to take it. So, so then uh, I went back and told Larry. He said, "Okay." Um, so, so I said to Lou Lapham, "What should I do?" He said, "You should work with a very small group of." Uh, very smart people doing anything. doesn't matter what you do. It matters who you're doing it with. So I told Larry, he said, well, why don't you go down and see one of my classmates named Bill Donaldson, who had started a firm called Donaldson, Lufkin, and Jenneret. Which, by and, the way, became the first firm on Wall Street to go public instead of the usual partnership. Absolutely. So I went down and I met Bill. 
uh, and um, that was really pretty amazing. Um, you know, like all Wall Street people, he sort of keeps you waiting a half an hour, uh, not not to make you feel bad, but because he's working on something that's much more consequential than meeting you. And so I went and I sat in his office and he says, um, why, why do you want to work uh, at DLJ? I said, I don't even know what you do at DLJ, but I was sitting in your lobby and these young people you're employing look so smart, so active, so alert, so quick. Whatever they're doing, I want to do it. And um, so he sat there and he said, okay. He said, go around and meet some of my partners. So he set up a, you know, like half a day for me to meet people. And of course, it was like meeting the village idiot, me. Uh, I, I had nothing you could even interview me about. And so I went back to Bill at the end. He said, well, how did it go? I said, from who, whose perspective? I said, from your partner's perspective, I think they think you've completely wasted their time. He said, oh, okay, all right. Uh, listen, I'll give you a call in a few days. You know, so, so he calls like two or three days later, and he said, he said I want to offer you a job. And, you know, I, I have no training. I don't even know what a stock is or a bond. I never had an accounting course. I, I never saw an annual report. I knew nothing. So I said, okay. He said, yeah, it's uh, $10,000 a year. Now, this is amazing what you're about to relate. Yeah. You, you know nothing. You get a job offer, but you counter it. Tell right. us about it. <laughs> so, 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 so he said, it's $10,000. So I said, you know, that's really terrific. And I said, there's only one problem. He said, what's the problem? I, I said, I need 10-5. He said, what do you mean you need 10-5? I, I said, well, there's one other person in my class who is getting 10,000, and I want to be the highest paid person graduating from my class. He said, that's your problem, not mine. He said, it's 10. I said, well, I'm not going to take the job. And he said, you're not going to take the job. I said, I said, that's right. I want to be the highest paid person from my class. And he said, you're kidding, aren't you? I said, I'm not kidding. He said, really? I said, yeah, really. And um, so he said, well, we're not set up for that. He said, um, he said, let me think about this. I'll call you. So he calls me like another day or two later. And he said, look, it's sort of stupid, but if you really need the 10-5, I'll give you the 10-5. I mean, you know, so I got the 10-5. And yet you, you go there and you learn something that uh, holds you in good stead when you start your own firm. As you say, you know nothing. And suddenly they say, tell us about Genesco, a company at the time. You didn't know the difference between a debenture and a, and a preferred stock. You didn't have the internet where you could quickly go and find out about this stuff. They just threw you in. Yeah, they gave me an annual report and asked me what I thought. And what I thought is that I needed more deodorant. Uh, this is so frightening. I mean, and what I learned uh, and it led me to do a certain series of things at Blackstone is you just can't take somebody who's uh, unfamiliar with something and, and expect them to perform. You have to train them. 
I know this doesn't sound like big, deep thoughts, but that's not the way Wall Street operated at that time. Uh, and, you know, I wanted to make sure that no one who ever worked with me or for me was ever put into the same awful position that I was, I was put in. It's, you know, so we do like amazing training at Blackstone. Legendary. I, I just finished uh, from 8.30 to 10 uh, today, actually, talking to all of our new uh, uh, analysts. Uh, and, you know, I, I told them how to be successful. I, I went over, you know, sort of the course that they had. I told them how to do things or not do things. I told them all this stuff that takes years for those of us who've been doing things to know like right away. And, and so I'm really proud, uh, not just that we, you know, sort of attract amazing people now, but that I what make sure. What you call sure, the tens. Yes, they're tens. Uh, I make sure that they're all comfortable, that, that nobody's anxious, that they've got the, the, the tools to build the building. Uh, and, you know, I learned that by being abandoned, uh, you know, in effect, uh, training-wise. So you leave DLJ after six months. you got to go in the Army Reserves. You go down to Fort Polk, uh, Louisiana. The colonel says to the new recruits, if you have any problem, come see me, which uh, everyone knows you don't take seriously. But you realize something is wrong with the company, the food, what you're doing. And so you go and you go to the colonel's office. You didn't get shot for insubordination. Tell us how you actually got to see the colonel and what happened. Well, uh, you know, we, we were not getting uh, our normal expectation of food. Uh, and if, if you're in the military and there's not enough to eat, this is like a bad concept. Uh, and um, um, so, so I could figure out something was wrong. And so, so the colonel had said, uh, you know, an indoctrination, um, come and see him if you think something's wrong. So I just went to see him. And, and of course, when you show up at uh, headquarters and, and, and the clerk uh, sees you, said, what are you doing here? I said, I'm here to see the colonel. He said, get the hell out of here. He said, you don't have an appointment. You don't see colonels. You're, you're a trainee. So uh, I said, well, I'm not leaving. And that, that brought the lieutenant who went through the same thing. And then I had a captain who was even more disagreeable. And I just refused to leave. And um, they were pretty threatening. And eventually, the colonel walked in and... It's obviously an uncomfortable situation. I told him who I was, and you know, I wanted to talk to him as a result of his brief. And and so we went in his office, and he had very short hair, uh, you know, sort of a gray and black, uh, in great shape. And I told him, you know, there's something wrong with our company, and we're not getting food. And so he picks up a sheet of paper with all the companies in his brigade. Uh, or battalion, I forget which, uh, and he looks at it, he said, geez, you, your company's the last in everything, every training exercise, every achievement. So he said, he said, go back to your company. Um, don't tell anybody you came here to see me, and I will take care of this problem. Like a day later, 
all the officers were gone in our company. Got a complete new group. All of a sudden, we got a lot of food, like normal in the Army. You're very well fed in the Army. So, so that, was, um, that was an interesting experience. You deserve a medal for seeing that one through. So you go back after your six months, you're at Harvard Business School. You did learn there something very important to reinforce something, interconnectedness with, uh, you maybe in a forest, you may look at a tree, but you got to realize in the forest. But you were not impressed with the way Harvard Business School was run. And so like with the colonel, you go and you see the dean, a fellow named Larry Foraker. Tell us about that. Yeah, you know, it was a bad time for Harvard Business School because uh, it was during the Vietnam War and it was a very anti-business uh, time. And, and so the students uh, were, were, were really not up to the caliber of kids uh, that I had gone to high school with and college with. Uh, the uh, instructors the, you weren't impressed with the, either. The, the teachers were basically sort of first-year, second-year instructors. They didn't know how to teach. And uh, the curriculum, I thought, was uh, outmoded, uh, and, um, and, and the administrative apparatus of the school was very uh, kludgy and so forth. So I was the head of the student organization, and um, you know, each section at the business school nominated their three top kids, and then they got together and voted for somebody to be president, and I was that person. And uh, so, so it took me a very, very long time to make an appointment with the dean. Uh, and I went to see him, and I, I, you know, I said, thank you very much for seeing me. I just wanted to bring some things to your attention. You know, you have students who can't learn, you know, teachers who can't teach, an outmoded curriculum, and, uh, you know, sort of administrative structure that doesn't work either. And, and here's how uh, you can address each of these things. Uh, to make them more successful. So, so he listens to all that, and he looks at me, and he says, um, he said, Mr. Schwarzman, have you always been a misfit? And uh, I said, no. No, I haven't. I said I was president of my junior high school, 10th grade class, student council in high school. I was, you know, running the graduation at Yale. Uh, on the podium, um, and I'm the head of your most prestigious student organization. So no, I'm not a misfit. I said, I'm trying to be helpful. That's the only reason I'm here. I want things to be better. And um, he, he said, well, thank you very much. I don't think I need any of your judgments. And then I realized why the school was in trouble. It's, what you learn is, is every organization I've been in that's a good organization is that the person uh, on top is always anxious to learn if something's wrong because he wants or she wants to fix it. When you finally meet somebody who's in charge of something, who's completely close-minded, has no interest in someone else's observation then you know that school's going to go down. And I told him, I said, you know, uh, I came here in good faith. You've got real problems here, and it's going to affect your ratings. And he, he said, well, that'll be about enough. And, and so uh, what happened at that point, Harvard Business School was ranked number one in the United States. 
And by the time it hit bottom, it was number seven. Took 20 years, um, but it was inevitable. And, and now it's returned. So you go to end up, long story short, at Lehman Brothers. Uh, before we get into that, tell us how you learned about stress. As you say in the book, every deal is a crisis. If you want to calm nine to five, it ain't going to happen. How did you learn how to deal with stress so you didn't burn yourself out? Yeah, I was... Um I spent a lot of my career doing mergers, which are pretty much of a zero-sum game. You sell a company. You know, if somebody pays more and you're the seller, you make more. If they pay less, you know, they did better. So, so um, you know, I, some of those things when you're younger, I found in my young 30s, I, I'd get really anxious and, you know, I wouldn't think as clearly uh, in very tense situations. So I started analyzing why I wasn't thinking as clearly, and I realized my, my, my breathing, uh, you know, I was an athlete, so my breathing was shallow but frequent, and obviously I wasn't, you know, getting as much um, uh, oxygen uh, to the brain. So I, I said, okay, whenever I'm under stress, I'm going to focus on my breathing. I'm going to relax my shoulders. I don't have to say anything at that point. I can wait. And once you, in effect, settle yourself, it's a little like before somebody shooting a foul shot, um, that, you know, then you hear everything as clearly as you and I are talking instead of feeling this enormous burden and stress. So that's how I dealt with that. So you're at Lehman Brothers. Uh, you learn a lot. They still don't have the proper training, but it's a small firm. You learn a lot. Tell us about how you got to be involved with the acquisition by a company called Beatrice of Tropicana. You're only 30 years old. Yeah, this was really a, a very um, transformational moment for me. I was um, uh, the, the, the number three person working on some other assignment in Chicago. Uh, for a company called Universal Oil Products. It was, they were looking at some potential mergers that happened to be with a company called Signal Oil. And um, I got a phone call from uh, the president of Tropicana, who I'd met once um, on like a new business trip or something uh, down in Florida. And, you know, he said to me, he, he said, I'm in the midst of a major merger, turned out to be the second biggest in the world. Uh, and I, I'd like uh, you to represent us. And I, I didn't quite understand who was talking about you. Uh, you Lehman Brothers, uh, he said, no, I want you personally to do this. And I had never done a merger. Uh, and this is a Friday afternoon. Friday afternoon. Uh, I'm in Chicago. And um, so I, I knew enough to know that you you can't have a conflict. You know, I, I didn't know what else was going on in the firm. Uh, and so I called one of my friends uh, at work, uh, 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 Teddy Roosevelt the uh, fourth, And I said, uh, TR, go around and talk to all the partners and find out I've been asked to do something, uh, you know, for uh, Tropicana. And uh, so he did that. And he called me back, said there's no um, conflict. Uh, and, you know, so I got, you know, I finished what I was working on and I was, I was told by uh, 
the president of Tropicana. I had to be there at like uh, 7.30 or 8 o'clock in the morning. Saturday morning. Saturday morning. And so I, um, you know, went to the airport and got a plane and it was a snowstorm. In Chicago, everything was late. And so by the time I landed in this Bradenton, Florida, uh, it was about 4 or 4.30 in the morning. And, and No new suit. I, I mean, I had no clothes other than what I was wearing. And so I tried to go to sleep, couldn't sleep. And at 7, I started dialing for help. So, so I, I called the head of Lehman, uh, Pete Peterson, and I said, Pete, you know, I'm, I'm in this situation. And, and I only had some very, uh, something called the stock guide. Remember, we didn't have uh, yeah. internet. S&P we, put we those didn't, out. We didn't, yeah. we didn't have any databases. We had nothing almost. And, and they had some very summary statistics. So I was sitting on this plane trying to figure out if I were ever going to do a merger, how would I do it? Because nobody ever trained me to do this. And, you know, okay, so I got this company, Beatrice, and I got this one. Tropicana, and then maybe I can find some other food ones to see. Uh, and and so, 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 you know, Pete said, well, you know, you ought, you ought to talk to the number two person at the firm, Lou Glucksman. So I woke Lou up. Uh, I don't think he was happy about that. You know, he's in bed. And um, Saturday morning. Saturday morning. And I, I, I said, Lou, here's the situation. He's, uh, here's what I think. What do you think? And, and he said, yeah, yeah, the deal's fair at that kind of price. And, you know, they they offered three different packages of securities. I, I, I said, well, which one should I pick? He said, well, it sort of doesn't matter. And that was the end of that conversation. And then he said, you ought to call Bob Rubin, who was the number three person. So I called Bob and I said, Bob, you know, I've talked to Pete. I've talked to Lou. I mean, I got this situation here. And which one of these security packages? He said, well, I wouldn't do number one, but two or three, either one. It's just about your taste. And, you know, I, I don't think we have enough time on the podcast to go through which the differences were. Uh, except, you know, there I was. And, you know, so I, I met Ken Barnaby uh, at like 7.30, and he said, well, you're going live, you know, in like 15 minutes and go to the board. I've never been to a board meeting. And... So I walk in this room, there was like the governor of Florida who just retired, all these prominent people, and then Mr. Rossi, who started the company, who looked like um, Marlon Brando at the end of The Godfather when, when he fell into the, um, uh, the all, all those tomato uh, right. uh, stalks. Uh, and, you know, he, he said, come over next to me. So I sit next to him, got a stenographer and two tape recorders. And he said, now, Mr. Schwarzman, we're considering a merger with Beatrice Foods. Why don't you tell us what to do? Fright? You must be kidding. And, and you know, so, so I basically talked to him about selling their business. Is this a good idea or a bad idea? He said, I think it's a good idea. I said, okay you control the company by definition it's a good idea and you know the price but you did it in a way you 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 had yeah. already started to pick up find out what's on their mind right what's the and you were, instead of saying this is the best no you got out of him what what is right. in he well, thinks is in his right. interest why are you selling it 
you know, what, what do you need? Do you need an income stream? Do you need appreciation? How are you thinking about it? So he felt the, you were on his side, even though you were on the other side. No, I'm on his side. And, and you know, so I, I ended up getting through this meeting. Uh, and um, then, I, then I realized I, I hadn't called my wife. And I was supposed to be home Friday night. And, and now it's, you know, like somewhere around 11 o'clock on Saturday. I'm in Florida. So I called her. We were having a dinner party. And I said, I'm, I'm really sorry, but, you know, I'm down in Florida. So, Florida, what are you talking about? Where were you last night? I said, look, this is really complicated. I'm in the middle of some merger. So, merger, what are you talking about? So that was an unsuccessful conversation. And, and then the rest of the day was spent working out the uh, definitive agreement. So it was the second largest merger, I think, ever. You're 30 years old. Yep. And uh, on Wall Street, they don't throw rose petals at your street. You get a call from Felix Roten, the uh, eminence grees of Wall Street, and one of the things he says to you, warns you, a lot of people are going to hate you. Yeah, I found that pretty surprising. Why would somebody hate me? Um, but apparently he was right. Including uh, somebody who accused you of stealing the deal. Yeah, I had one person who, you know, internally who thought I was stealing his deal, um, although that was never disclosed. Um, and uh, I, 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 the success of this thing, the scale of it, the fact that I, I wasn't a partner, the fact that there was there was no one working on it other than me, um, you know, brought forth. Uh, you know, a, a trade I'm not, you know, enormously um, familiar with until that point called envy. Uh, and Felix was really right. Uh, he told me some other things. He said, listen, you have a responsibility to speak out. Uh, that's what goes with being somebody like yourself who accomplishes things at this age. And, and I, I listened to that and I said, wow, really? So, uh, you know, I, I was like a sponge uh, taking in everything that was going on around me. But I remember when I got back to New York, um, the same snowstorm went from Chicago to New York. So I didn't get home till four o'clock again. And, and, you know, my wife was asleep and I, th this had been so shocking. I had, basically hadn't slept in two days. And I, I sat down in my living room and had a fireplace, I put a fire in the fireplace and I put uh, a Saturday, uh, Saturday Night Fever Bee Gees. album, the Bee Gees album on uh, by Robert Stigwood. And I just sat there listening to that, watching the fire, saying, what just happened to me? So you team up with Pete Peterson to start your own firm uh, how did you, one, team up with him, and how did you exp uh, tell us how you got the name BlackRock? Well, we did Blackstone. We subsequently did BlackRock. With Larry Fink. We did both of them. You know, I teamed up with Pete because I, I had worked with Pete. I was sort of Pete's deal execution person, and, you know, he knew everybody, and, you know, I, I was very good intuitively doing all these types of transactions. So we were like a perfect fit. Uh, different personalities, Pete is... Uh, that gets to something very important about uh, entrepreneurs. Often it's partnerships. Wozniak, right. Jobs. 
So you get Google, you see other companies, Ford and Cousins, uh, bringing what, two different things to the table. Yeah, what you learn is that, that you know one person isn't necessarily a ten at everything. Sometimes they're an eleven at a bunch of things, but they're no good at other things. And 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 so it, you know, at least in my case and many others, it, it's really uh, important, useful, and, and in some cases essential to have people who bring different skills to the table. And and that was. Uh, the way it was with, with Pete and myself. So you each put up $200,000. BlackRock, Black, Schwartz, who, 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 how, how well, did you put well, the we, name together? You've yeah, gone through a lot of names. You didn't want to be a law firm name. Yeah, so. we, we had a problem picking a name. And, um, um, uh, and, and we spent months and months trying to pick a name, and we couldn't figure one out that we both liked. In other words, we weren't opposed to the other person's idea just wasn't much good, and they weren't defending it, so it wasn't <laughs> difficult. And uh, Pete's wife uh, uh, started a company, and uh, she said, listen, you two, just pick a name. It doesn't matter what it is. She said, she said here's how this works. No matter what the name is, if you fail, nobody will remember it. If you're successful, everyone will know it. The name doesn't matter. Just do something. She said, I did that. She said, I picked some crazy name uh, called Sesame Street. Uh, and, you know, now we're in 120 countries. And everybody watches children's television workshop and Big Bird and, you know, Snuffleupagus and Ernie. And she said, you know, so now everybody knows that name when we picked it. You know, we, it meant nothing. So my father-in-law at that time was uh, the senior rabbi in the um, Air Force. So just happened to be with him. He said, well, listen, why don't you take, you know, the German of your name, because my family was from Austria, and uh, Schwartz means uh, black, and uh, 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 with Peterson, his original name was Petropolis, not his, his father's, changed his name to Peterson. Uh, and he said Petros uh, in, in Greek means rock or stone. So, so, so pick a rock or a stone, put it with black, and, you know, there you go. So I went to Pete, and I said, well, what do you think about um, black rock or black stone? And he said, which one do you like? I said, I like black stone. He said, black stone's great. So, so uh, we took Blackstone, and ultimately, you know, with Larry Fink, was looking for money, and, and after he left First Boston, and, you know, he, he and his team, which were really extraordinary people, joined us at, at uh, Blackstone. And, and when we decided to, to separate, because Larry wanted to sell his business after it got to a certain uh, scale, um, you know, the only thing the experts told us is don't use anything with black. So, so it was Larry's idea. He said, well, why don't, why don't we keep like a family relationship? And, you know, I, I can be you know, either black pebble or, 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 or black rock. I said, well, the pebble sounds pretty bad. I, I said, I like rock. And he, he said, yeah, I like it too. And he said, you know, if we do this, my people are going to, hate me and your people are going to hate you because we all had these experts that said, this is the only thing you can't do. And so we did it. Uh, and so now uh, BlackRock is the 
largest uh, money manager in the world, and and Blackstone uh, is the largest alternative manager. And, you know, I think um, we have the two largest market caps uh, of of financial companies that were started. You, you, You mentioned the book, Looking Back. You kind of wish maybe you'd made an accommodation with Larry. Yeah, I, you know, this was my mismanagement. I mean, you know, we set the business up on a 50-50 basis, and I didn't want to dilute beyond a certain point, and, and that was the deal. And then when it came time to dilute, you know, the guys at, at, at what's now BlackRock were saying, well, that's not fair, we're doing all the work. They were right, it just wasn't the deal. And, and now as, a, as sort of a grown-up, I would have recognized that and changed. I didn't. So this is all on me. Uh, but you learn. I learned at huge cost. That's not the end of my conversation with Steve Schwartzman. There's much more to come from this man. You may not know his name very well, but he's extraordinarily successful and influential and has some very insightful things that all of us can learn from. So come back next week for part two, where you'll hear more insightful stories from a man who knows how to tell great stories, a great raconteur, Steve Schwartzman. And now, here are my reads of the week. Well, we all know people these days don't like the so-called fangs, the big high-tech companies. And there's a lot of talk about antitrust action. States are doing it. The Justice Department is opening an investigation. But you should read an article by Andy Kessler, K-E-S-S-L-E-R, in the Wall Street Journal, WSJ.com. It's called Antitrust Can't Catch Big Tech. And what he talks about is the Hangtown Fry. The Hangtown Fry goes back to the gold rush days in Northern California. When a man was condemned to hang, he got to choose his last meal. Now the smart ones chose an omelet with bacon and oysters. The reason is to get the oysters, it took weeks or months to get it to the gold rush country and put off the execution for a long time. So the Hangtown Fry tells you why the Justice Department and others aren't gonna catch up with high tech. Another one. This one is going to really raise your hackles, which is good. We always need to get a little jolt. It's a piece by Sally Saitel, Dr. Sally Saitel. She is at the American Enterprise Institute. She wrote a piece for USA Today. You can find it on usatoday.com. The title is Don't. I underline that word, don't. Don't ban non-tobacco-flavored e-cigarettes. Adults are in more danger than your kids. This is a must-read. She's very scientific. She gives a counterpoint of view. We always need that. And talking about Brexit and Boris Johnson and the fight in Britain and Europe, there's an interesting article in the Claremont Review of Books. It's called, an essay, it's called, Why Hasn't Brexit Happened? The British Constitution in Crisis. It's written by Christopher Caldwell and can be found on claremont.org. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. 
And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.